to a four-person family, uh, but this church family that we have here has been so amazingly kind and loving, and it means the world to us. It really does. Um, thank you also to the staff for um, keeping things going, for holding down the fort while I was able to take a week off and be with the family. Thanks to Alex for preaching a great message last week from Matthew 5. I don't know if you all realize this, but Alex had to be on standby for three or four Sundays in a row with, ready with that message in case Sarah went into labor at any time in there. So I uh, finally got to preach it last week. So thanks for that. And uh, Looking forward to jumping back into First Peter today. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You heard somebody say, Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. You heard that? Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. The idea behind that saying is that in order to be effective, helpful here on earth, um, you have to have your feet squarely planted on the ground. You can't have your head up in the clouds thinking about heavenly things all the time. You won't be of any good here. The problem with that is, as has been noted from this pulpit before, the Bible teaches just the opposite in some ways. But what the Bible kind of teaches is that Unless you're heavenly minded, it's hard to be of any earthly good. In other words, it's precisely our heavenly mindedness that gives us a shot at being of some earthly good here. Um, this passage we're going to be looking at today, in 1 Peter chapter 1, is one of the passages in Scripture that most strongly makes that case. So would you turn there with me now? 1 Peter chapter 1, we're still in chapter 1, we're starting at verse 13 today and we'll get almost to the end of the chapter. As you're turning there, let me remind you of what we're doing in this series. We're walking through this letter of 1 Peter. It's written by Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, about 30 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. He's writing to churches, Christians, in churches in five regions of what we would now call Turkey. And he's writing to them in a moment in time when they're just starting to feel what we've been calling the experience of exile. They're just starting to feel social ostracization, if that's a word. So um, They're starting to feel exclusion. They're starting to be mocked and ridiculed for their faith. And two people experiencing that, he comes and he starts out this letter talking about this living hope. We saw that in the first 12 verses. And we saw that it was not primarily a call to action, but primarily a call to celebration. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago. The reason for that was because the Christian faith is not primarily good advice, but it's primarily what? Good news, first and foremost. That said, though, even though Christianity is good news, first and foremost, it's not that the Christian faith has nothing to say for how we live. It surely does. Right? And the letter of First Peter is filled with uh, wisdom about how to live, commands even, about how to live, and we're going to get into that section of the text today, this morning, starting in verse 13, where Peter turns his attention to is to answering this question. If the living hope talked about in the first 12 verses is true, how then ought we to live? That's going to be the question he answers, starts to answer in this text today. Before we jump in, I want to just kind of show you the structure. You won't be able to read it because it's very small, but this will help you see the structure. Um, this is the passage we're going to be looking at. 
you can see it's bookended by hope. That's kind of the envelope that the passage falls within is this idea of hope. And then within that, there's three commands that really form the backbone of the passage. So what we're going to do today is look at that and give honor to that by saying this is our big idea. May our conduct in exile, our conduct being represented by those three commands, be shaped by our hope, the hope that frames and bookends this passage. May our conduct in exile be shaped by our hope. So we'll walk our way through those three commands. Uh, and with each of them, Peter spends some time talking about the hope that is meant to fuel our obedience to each of these three commands. So we'll note that as we go. First command, set your hope on future grace. Set your hope on future grace. Would you look for that as we read verse 13? I'll read it out loud if you'd follow along. First Peter 1.13, therefore... That means based on those first 12 verses that laid out that living hope. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll pause there. Um, For the most part, we can choose, actually, what we set our hope on in this life. What we can choose what we look forward to. Did you ever, ever think about that? I hadn't really thought about that before these last couple weeks, but then I thought of the example of my dad. Um, when I was a junior and senior in high school, he was coaching in the NFL and working long hours, coming home late at night if he'd come home at all, going in the office early in the morning when the first digit on the clock was still a four. Um, so I, of course, was sleeping as a high school student, but I was awakened almost every morning in the fours, right around 4.30, by a loud sound outside my window that jolted me awake. And it was my dad leaving the house and on his way out the door every morning would yell out loud, Woo! Bring it on, world! (laughs) Now, what was he doing in that moment besides being crazy? He He was exhausted. He was worn down in the middle of a long football season coaching a team that wasn't very good at the time. And... But what he was doing is he was choosing to be excited for the day ahead of him. He was choosing to look forward to his work day. And I thought about that because in that moment, in that example, I'm seeing my dad choosing not to drift, but to kind of attack his day with some intentionality. And I thought about that as it relates to this verse 13. How many of us are intentional about choosing what we look forward to each day? Aren't we more prone to just kind of drift? into whatever comes our way. I know I am. But Peter here in verse 13 is saying, don't think that you're just going to drift into hope. That's not the way it works. We don't drift into hope. If you're going to be filled with hope, you need to choose to set your mind, set your hope on certain things. Particularly, he's saying set your hope on one thing, the grace that's coming for you at the second coming of Christ when he's revealed. You see that there in verse 13 in the call to set your hope? That grace that he's talking about is part of, it falls under the umbrella of the living hope that we've been talking about in these first 12 verses. This living hope that, just as a refresher, this living hope that says that even though you and I have staged private revolutions in our hearts against the king of the universe who made us and loved us, still that king has made a way for us to be welcomed into his forever family. And as we are welcomed into his forever family, there's an inheritance that comes with it. In heaven. That was the living hope laid out in the first 12 verses. But you may have seen in an article that I put out there in the highlights a week or two ago that I wrote. um, 
I believe that we have some lesser hopes in our life, in our lives, that tend to squeeze out living hope. One that I laid out in that article is this thing that we called uh, North Shore Hope. So we've got living hope and North Shore Hope. North Shore Hope is the hope of a uh, secure financial future. North Shore Hope is academic achievement. North Shore Hope is the hope of vocational success, right? We might call those things North Shore Hope. The problem is that if that's where we set our hope in those things, we become, our senses become dulled to the living hope that is laid out in First Peter and in Scripture. Um, so much so that we can hear and read about living hope and just feel numb to it. Not feel the celebration welling up in us that we looked at two weeks ago that is what's meant to happen as a result of the living hope, the gospel, the inheritance that awaits us. So we fight against North Shore hope, but it's a difficult battle. It's really difficult to fight against North Shore hope when it's the air that we breathe all around us. However, I think it's actually precisely the battle that we are called to be fighting. I think that's the sort of battle that Peter has in mind. Take a look again at verse 13. Again, the main call is set your hope fully on this grace that's coming. But how do we do that? Peter tells us how with two phrases there at the beginning of the verse. How do we set our hope where it needs to be? Well, by preparing our minds for action and by being sober-minded. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. What does that mean? Do you see the footnote there under preparing your minds for action? If you have an ESV Bible, you see the footnote. The footnote tells us that literally that preparing your minds for action is girding up the loins of your mind. The picture is removing restraints so that you can run, right? People in Peter's day would be wearing long robes. So if they wanted to run, they had to tuck their robes up into their belt, gird their loins, you might call it, in order to be able to run unhindered. It's the same thing for us, Peter's saying. If our hope is going to be set where it ought to be set, then we need to take North Shore hope, all the lesser hopes that threaten to capture our attention, tuck it up in our belt so that we can run unhindered to where we ought to run, into the hope, the living hope that we're actually called to. Um, we're set our hope fully on that grace. It's important that we don't miss that word fully either. Did you see that there in verse 13? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Because the lie is that just a little bit of North Shore hope won't hurt. Right? You can just sprinkle a little bit of that in. As long as your main hope is living hope, we can deal with a little bit of North Shore hope being part. You can have both. Right? The reason that's a lie is because lesser hopes, like North Shore hope, they function sort of like a vaccine functions. They inoculate us against the real thing. So if I get a little bit of North Shore hope, even if it's just a little bit here and there, if I feed that, if I set my hope there just a little bit from time to time, then when the real thing comes, when living hope hits me, when I open up the word and see it, when it's preached to me, it doesn't have the effect that it was intended to have because I've been inoculated against it by a lesser hope. Does that make sense? That's why we are called to fight against it with all of our might. Tuck it up so it's out of the way so that we can run into the hope that we are meant to have, the true hope. So hey, this first command, set your hope on future grace. If that's the command, then the application question for us at the end of this first point is pretty straightforward. Where are you setting your hope? Where am I setting my hope? 
Where are we choosing to set our hopes? Now, don't get me wrong here. If you can get a home in a safe neighborhood, if you can get career success, if you can get academic achievement, if you can get into the school you dream of getting into, if you can get a stable retirement, by all means, avail yourself of those things, right? Those things in and of themselves aren't wrong or sinful. Where they become poisonous or deadly is when we set our hope on them. When that's where our hope rests, that's when it can squeeze out living hope and choke out what we're meant to be experiencing. The saints who have flourished in exile over the centuries, they're the sort of people who rejoiced when they were robbed, rejoiced when they were mocked, rejoiced when they were beaten. How did they do that? It was all about their hope and where their hope rested. Their hope wasn't in their 401ks. Their hope wasn't in their reputation. Their hope wasn't even in their health. Their hope was in the living hope of an inheritance to come in heaven in the forever family of the king of the universe. That's our first command. Set your hope on future grace. The second one is tucked into verse 15. It's easy to miss. Be holy. Actually, all of verses 14 to 16 revolve around this command to be holy. Look for that as I read Verses 14 to 16 out loud. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, uh, some well-known cultural commentators, Christian or not, have agreed that the supreme, they've agreed regarding what is the supreme virtue of our day and age. Like, what is the characteristic, the quality that is most desirable and praised in our world today? Do you know what it is? Anybody read any of this? Uh, I heard somebody say something. Tolerance is one. Authenticity is the one that I was thinking of, too. Tolerance is another one, though. It's been called, though, we've been called, it's, this has been called the age of authenticity that we're living in. It might be summarized in the three-word phrase that's popular now, you do you, right? In other words, don't let anybody else tell you who you are or what you should do. You look inside yourself and figure out who you are and what you want to do, and then you do that, even if every other voice in your life is telling you otherwise, right? You do you. That's what it means to be authentic, the age of authenticity. So... The only heroic narrative left, really, in our movies and TV shows is that lone person against all other voices in their life carving out a life for themselves based on the identity that they've found within. Now, actually, believe it or not, there may be, there is, some commonality between that you-do-you mindset and what Peter calls Christians to in 1 Peter. Here's what I mean. The message that Peter is going to have that we're going to see throughout this letter is something like, hey Christians, be who you are regardless of what anyone else says. So far, that's a message that could actually be embraced in our age of authenticity, 2019. Here's what's different. It's different because as Christians, our standard for who we are doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. The world is looking down inside and listening to their hearts to see who they are. 
But as we look at our Bible, there's actually never a call to listen to our hearts. Actually, our scriptures say things like, the heart is deceitful above all things and without cure, who can know it? And so instead of looking inside of our hearts, we're called to look outside of ourselves to who God says we are. And we're to embrace that as who we are and then live into that regardless of what any other voices in this world tell us. I say all that to provide kind of some of the deep logic that's underlying this call to be holy here in verse 16. Again, to be holy is to be set apart, to be other, so to speak. Um, In that way, there's a sense in which the Bible can talk about only God being holy, right? Uh, in, In that sense, it's God's holy, everything else isn't. There's God, there's everything else. He is other. He's the one who's set apart. No one else is like him, right? That's a true diagram there, according to Scripture. However, in another sense, Scripture can talk like this. There's a way for people or things to be holy. Holy because they are set apart, distinguished, other than everything else around. For a person or a thing to be holy, as priests were in the Old Testament, as even some objects like the shovels that the priests use for ceremonial service in the Old Testament, they were holy. Those people and things can be holy if they're set apart exclusively for God and for his purposes. So as we reflect on our call to be holy, and if being holy is to be set apart for God and for his purposes, here's a question. Are we holy or are we supposed to become holy? What do you think? Are we holy or are we supposed to become holy? I'm hearing a little bit of both, and I think that's good because actually the Bible can tell us both, right? There's a sense in which we have already been declared to be holy in God's sight on the basis of the blood of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that's good news for us, that we are holy. And then the call of Scripture in passages like this one is to be who you are. Be who God already says you are. He already calls you a holy people, a people set apart and distinct from the whole rest of the world, a people devoted solely to him and to his purposes. So be that. Let that be reflected in the way that you live your life, in your conduct. In that sense, the you do you message actually is an okay one if qualified by our understanding of you being that we are holy, that we are set apart, that we are distinct in Christ. Here's the problem, though. We're not really good at uh, distinguishing what it means to live holy, what that looks like. Uh, We actually are pretty good at living the way we want to live and justifying it to ourselves as though that's Christ-likeness and holiness, right? For that reason... When the Bible calls us to be holy, it very often grounds our call to holiness not in what we perceive to be holiness, but rather in God's own holiness. Did you see that here in this passage? It's grounded in God's holiness in verse 15. It doesn't just say, be holy, does it? Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. And then to hammer home the point in case we missed it, in verse 16 he quotes Leviticus 11 saying, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The call is always for our holiness to look like God's. In other words, if I think I'm living a holy, set-apart, other, distinct life, but I'm not increasingly looking like the holy God in whose image I was made, 
then whatever I think I'm living, I'm not actually living in holiness. So what does that look like in practice? If I'm living holy, living like a holy God, what does that look like in practice? I think verse 14 gives us an idea. What does it say there? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What was the former ignorance of Peter's readers? I think that would have to include any number of passions, desires that they used to live in as pagans, mostly Gentiles, but even some Jewish people before they came to know Jesus as their Savior. Um, certainly knowing what we know about these regions that Peter's writing to, um, wanton sexual sin was a big part of their, their world, their life that they came out of into Christianity. So maybe we'll use that as an example here today as we reflect on what it would mean to leave behind former ignorance for the sake of holiness. Young people sometimes will say things like this and feel this way. It's just impossible today to... Um, leave behind my former passions and a former way of life because all of my friends are having sex outside of marriage. Right? The thought behind that is something like it's uniquely hard today in a way that it's never been hard before to follow Jesus and to leave behind the way that the rest of the world around us is living. But I wonder, what if that's not exactly true? Here's what I mean. Um, did you know that high school and college students are having sex less today than any time in the last three decades. Did you know that church attendance today is higher, greater, than it was during the 13 colonies, for example? Did you know that what was going on in the cities to which Peter wrote this letter in terms of just wild sexual expression in the town square out in the open, would be enough to make any of us blush. I say all that to make the point that we aren't exactly experiencing anything categorically new as Christians today. Um, Christians have always been drawn to the passions of the world around them, the world that we left behind to come into the Christian faith, and we've always been called to decisively break with those former ways and leave them for the sake of holiness. And so, we should ask, before we go on any further, have you left behind the passions and desires of your former way of life? Or, are you secretly nibbling behind closed doors? The problem with nibbling on those former passions, just to remember what it tastes like, is that every little nibble conforms us, to use the language of this passage, conforms us a little more in one direction or the other. If I nibble a little today, I'll be a little bit more hungry for it tomorrow. And, and it works in the opposite way as well. If, if, if I'm feasting on the living hope talked about in verses 1 through 12 here today, then tomorrow I'm going to be more hungry for that. Right? We've been called to decisively break with it, leave it behind. Part of becoming holy is leaving behind our former ignorance. Before we leave this section, though, this second section, I don't want us to miss the gospel grounding for this call to be holy. Because based on what we've talked about so far, it could be misunderstood as just this white-knuckle, grit-your-teeth, God's holy, so you imitate him and you willpower your way to being like him. And that's not at all what Peter's doing in this passage. 
This call to be holy is actually grounded in good news. The good news that before we ever acted holy, God had already taken the initiative to graciously include us in his family. Did you see that language there at the beginning of verse 14? As obedient children, right there is a reminder of what was said in the first 12 verses, that we have a father, a father who set his electing love on us and foreknew us before we were even born, a father who caused us to be born a second time, this time into an inheritance that would never spoil or fade. It's based on that good news that he gives the call to be holy. And we see it again in verse 15 with the reminder there that this God that we're talking about, this father we're talking about, he's the one who called us. Do you see that there? As he who called you is holy. That's a reminder that we're not initiating anything in this process. We're not just trying to be holy in order to earn our place in God's family. We are striving to be holy out of gratitude that we've already been included in God's family but by no uh, merit of our own. So as we reflect on this call to holiness here in the second section of the text, and as we remember that be, to be holy means to be set apart, to be other, let's ask the question before we wrap up the second point, how other are we? How other are we as individuals, as a church? The tricky thing about that is that it's possible to be too other, actually, and it's also possible not to be other enough. Here's what I mean. Here's what look, uh, being too other might look like. I can't um, have a, I can't grill out with my neighbors without being super awkward, my neighbors who don't know Jesus, right? I, I can't go to the beach and just be a normal person at the beach. I, I can't watch a baseball game with unbelieving cousins and engage in conversation with them. That would be too other. That's not the sort of otherness, holiness, set-apartness called for in this passage, right? We should be able to operate within the world and be, to be a light to the world. However, there's also the danger of not being other enough. Not being other enough would look like we just live like our neighbors the whole week except for the 90 minutes on Sunday morning when we go to church and they're sleeping in or uh, playing golf. That's why verse 15 has that key word, all. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That means even when you're grilling out, even when you're going to the beach, even when you're doing something ordinary like watching a baseball game, even those actions, all your conduct is shaped by holiness. We do all those things even a little bit different from how the world does them. We do them in an other, a set-apart way. It might be noticed, it might not be noticed, but we are other in all of our conduct if we belong to Christ. It's all been transformed by him. We're different from our neighbors who don't know Jesus yet. That's just the reality. This is their home. And they feel at home here in large part for that reason. We, on the other hand, are exiles here. Our home is elsewhere. And our conduct is set apart to reflect that fact. So, we've seen two commands so far. We've seen the call to set our hope on future grace. We've seen the call to be holy. Finally, we see the call to conduct ourselves with fear conduct ourselves with fear. Everything in verses 17 through 21 is subordinated to that command. Look for that as I read this last section of the text. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing 
that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Conduct yourselves with fear. Now, somebody might be thinking, wait, time out. I thought the whole point of this series, or a main point of this series, was that we shouldn't be fearful. That as we're getting mocked and excluded and ostracized increasingly in society, we're not supposed to be scared of that. We are supposed to, um, yeah, not, not be fearful. And now you're telling us that we're supposed to cultivate fear? And there it is, right there. Conduct yourselves with fear. And so, the 915 class that Mark Sharpie's been teaching, you guys have talked about this in recent weeks. The call, he, he says it well. I like how he puts it. He says, the call of First Peter is to fight fear with fear. Fight fear with fear. In other words, when I realize that I've been fearing things that I shouldn't fear, namely human beings and their approval, what they think of me, I fight that by, not by trying not to fear, but instead by trying to fear the right thing. By cultivating fear of the God whom I ought to fear. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about fear? We're talking about a reverent awe. We're talking about a deep respect. Um, We're talking about caring more about what God thinks than we care about what anyone else thinks. So much so that we tremble before him as we sung in that song earlier on. Now, if you're like me, you might be sitting here this morning like, I I think I fear God. How do I know if I'm really fearing God or if my fear is elsewhere? Again, I think Elliot Clark in that book, Evangelism as Exiles, is helpful. He says, you want to know what you fear? Think about this question. Um, Who do you want to please? Whom do you want to please? The people that we want to please most are those that we fear. That's a profound thing to reflect on. And we can see then why fear is an especially important concept for people who are living in exile, right? Because when you're in a moment of exile, your life is going to be characterized by fear. There's going to be fear in your life. The only question is, who are you going to fear? Who are you going to fear? Um, If our exile is temporary then we don't fear the person we're face-to-face with giving us disapproval today. We actually fear the one who we're going to face at the end, at the end of this time of exile when we come before him, uh, when it's all said and done. He's the one to fear. Now, some who may have been raised in a kind of background that was kind of like a God-is-your-buddy type of background might be a little confused right now with all this stuff we're talking about, about fearing God. Like, how could that be? If God is love, why should we fear him? So, it's worth reflecting on for a moment, what actually do we fear about God? We don't fear condemnation if we belong to Christ, because like Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We don't fear final judgment, because we have the certain hope as believers that when we stand before God on that final judgment day, that he's going to treat us on the merits of Christ, not on our own merits. So what is it that we actually fear, right? I think there's at least two things that 
that make fear a legitimate translation of what's going on here, and, and we shouldn't soften it by just saying awe or respect. There is a fear level involved in these, at least these two ways. It is possible for our God to be displeased with us, and our God does discipline us, even as believers, from time to time. It is possible to experience his displeasure and his discipline. I think we maybe see hints of that at least here in verse 17, and we'll see it more later in the letter. Here's what I mean. Follow verse 17 with me. It says, if you call on him as father. Now that language right there is the language of prayer, isn't it? Calling on the father, that's praying to him, right? So in other words, if you pray to God, conduct yourselves with fear. So how are my prayer, I ask, I ask then, how are my prayer and my conduct connected? Somehow those are connected in Peter's mind. If I'm praying to God as Father, then conduct myself with fear. I think the answer may be, or part of the answer at least, is that uh, something that I wasn't taught until uh, well into my Christian life. Did you know that God actually responds to our prayers differently based on our conduct, how we live? Did you know the Bible teaches that? God responds differently to our prayers based on how we live. Um, The Psalms teach that. When they say, Lord, your ears are open to who? To the righteous. Chapter 3 of 1 Peter is going to teach that. When Peter says, hey, if you're not treating your spouse well, don't expect your prayers to be heard by God. Your prayers will be hindered if you're not treating your spouse well in a proper way. The reality of what the Bible teaches is that we can experience God's displeasure and discipline, at least in the form of his refusal to hear our prayers if we're living contrary to his command. So at least in that sense, it's appropriate to live with some sense of fear that if I'm not living the way God has intended for me to live, that my prayers may not be answered. Um, We've got the call here. Conduct yourselves with fear. But I want us to see that just like with the other two commands, there's a gospel basis for this command as well. The gospel basis is long here. Verses 18 through 21 spell it out in glorious fashion. Conduct yourselves with fear. Why? Verse 18, because you know you were ransomed. Because you know you were ransomed, bought out of your former way of life. Bought with what? Well, the price paid was in verse 19, the precious blood of Christ. In other words, no greater cost could have been paid to set you and me free from our slavery to our former feudal ways. That makes it a shift in how we read about the fear that's talked about in this passage. It's no longer, hey, live your life in fear because there's an angry God looking down at you with a frown. That's not the message of this passage. It's more like this. Conduct yourselves with fear because there's a God who took the initiative to pay the price to purchase you out of the life you were formerly living. There's still fear involved. It's a different kind of fear. And verses 19 through 21 lay out exactly what Jesus did for us. It's beautiful. I wish we could have more time to lay it all out about what Jesus did for us in those verses. But I want to come at it this way. Do you see the so that in verse 21? Jesus did all this, shed his blood for us. Why? So that our faith and hope would be in God. So that our faith and hope would be in God. How are those connected? What Christ did for us and our faith and hope being in God? I think it's something like this. 
we can know based on what Christ did for us and what has happened in the trajectory of the life of Jesus Christ that we will one day be raised from the depths of shame that we find ourselves in now as, in, as exiles into the heights of glory. And the reason we have that hope is because we identify with Christ. We've got identification going on here in verses 19 through 21. Things are talked about with respect to Christ here that have been talked about with respect to us earlier in the chapter. We were foreknown earlier in the chapter. Now what does it say? Verse 20, Christ was foreknown. We are exiles earlier in the chapter. This talks about how Christ was crucified, which was an exile experience taken out of the city. We were raised from the dead. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. Verse 21. All along the way, we are meant to see ourselves as identifying with Christ. Our wagon being hitched to his. We go where he goes. So much so that there's hope as exiles that shame is not the final chapter in our story. The final chapter in our story will be the same as the final chapter of Christ's story, raised to glory. And that's the hope that we have of what's coming. The message then of this third section is, if that's what's coming for us, if that's what he's done for you, then conduct yourselves in fear of him. I don't know about you, but even with that, even with that look at the passage, it still seems a little bit odd to me that fear and hope will be put together side by side as if they could coexist. But in reality, when we think about it, fear and hope are connected because our fear shows where our hope lies. Our fear shows where our hope lies. If you and I, as Christians, fear the same things our neighbors fear, loss of financial security, uh, damage to our reputations, discomfort, then we show that our hope is no different from theirs. Maybe it's a North Shore hope. It's some sort of lesser hope. But if our fears are different from our neighbor's fears, we show that our hope is different. It's a living hope. It's something more enduring. So our big idea today again was this. May our conduct in exile be shaped by our hope. May our conduct in exile be shaped by our hope. So maybe we'll just close out by asking the question about our present conduct. I'll ask it about your present conduct. What does your present conduct say about where your hope lies? Someone watching your life, what would they conclude about, from your life, your conduct, about where your hope lies? Another way of asking that would be, are you heavenly minded enough to be of some earthly good? If you're like me, walking through this passage as we have, I don't know about you, it, it convicted me. I noticed lesser hopes that I've set my hope on without realizing it. Just this week, I found myself despairing when plans didn't go the way I thought they would. And I realized that I'm despairing in this moment because really what's happened is I've put my hope in my ability to plan. Also this week, I found myself lacking in prayer for people. And I realized that part of what's going on there is that I've set my hope in my ability to, on my own strength, compel people toward a vision. So I don't feel a need for prayer. Or this week I found myself uh, too easily offended. And when I reflected more deeply on that, I realized that part of what's going on there is that I've set my hope on what others think of me, their opinions of me. All number of lesser hopes that are pulling at us. Maybe you've been convicted of some of that too in your own life as we've walked through these three commands. 
Um, for that reason, we thought it fitting to conclude our service today with a confession that has been written by our own Sharon Crone um, in, in, in line with the three commands in this text. And then an assurance of pardon, the hope that we have in Christ. And that confession and assurance of pardon will be uh, bookended by songs in which we are able to cry out to God pleading for his mercy. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that our hope in you isn't like the world hopes. When the world hopes, they are just kind of wishing for the best. That's how we used to have to hope before we knew you. But in you, we have a certain hope, a hope that we can take to the bank, a hope that we know with absolute certainty is ahead of us. And that hope is that we'll be welcomed into your forever family once and for all with an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade, that we will be revealed in glory just as you're revealed in glory, and that we'll spend eternity in the bliss of your presence, in the presence of one another, in the presence of the Trinity. God, we look forward to that day. And we live in a place in which there are lesser hopes that are nonetheless pretty appealing to us. They're appealing enough that they sometimes cause us to think that they are the answer, that they are the thing to pursue. They're shiny enough that we want them really, really bad. Lord, loosen our grip on those. Help us not to love the things of this world. Help us not to set our hope on what the North Shore hopes in. But help us to set our living hope in you so much so that when we read about it, when we hear about it, when we sing about it, that we're gripped by it. During this time of song and confession and assurance of pardon, meet with us before we go. Help us to have an encounter with you as we bring our sin before you and as you wash it in white as snow. In Jesus' name, amen.